You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks and welcome to Let's Talk Apple 10 for June 2014. I'm your host Bart Bouchotts and joining me I have a fantastic panel as always. First off from the other hemisphere southwise we have Alistair Jenks all the way from New Zealand. Hi Alistair. Good morning Bart. It is morning for you. It's evening for me. It's morning for you. It's tomorrow I think. It is. It's uh, what day is it? Sunday. Sunday yeah. Saturday for me over here. Then jumping... A little closer to where I am in, in rainy Ireland, we have uh, Nick Riley joining us from the good old United Kingdom. Hi, Nick. Hi, Bart. Good to be here. It's good to have you back again. And then joining us from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, we have the aperture expert himself, uh, Joseph Lenaski, joining us for a uh, first time. And welcome aboard. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I have a feeling with some of the news this month, you're probably quite a popular guest. <laughs> that it has been. That it has been. Uh, I guess you're, there's a renaming in the offing for you, perhaps? There is, yeah. That's a final decision has not been made yet, but uh, we can certainly get to that. Yeah, well, I, at least you have some time, like we all do. But let's, let's not jump ahead. So before we get stuck into the main stories for the month, just a quick little follow-up. Last, when last we spoke, Apple were going to be splitting their stock in the future. Well, that has now happened in the past. It seemed to go off without a hitch, and uh, in fact, three weeks after the split, uh, Philip Elmer DeWitt did a roundup of people's price targets and found that they were up 9% after you divide by 7, if you get what I mean. <laughs> um, then just some interesting numbers that crossed my radar, really two related numbers. Um, Apple's app revenue is growing at a rate of 100% a year, so while everyone is looking at, you know, iPhone numbers aren't going up very fast, probably because they're very high already, the app revenue is still effectively doubling year over year, which is pretty impressive. And then related to that, uh, because Google had their I.O. conference and gave out some numbers, Philip Elmer DeWitt was able to do some math, and he calculated that with twice as many people, uh, Android gets half as much money from the App Store. So in other words, Apple is four times as profitable at selling apps as Google are in the Android store. Anyone have any thoughts on those, or will we get stuck into the legal stuff? Uh, probably just me. I'm largely responsible for that four times figure, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's easy to uh, easy to get a bit carried away, isn't it? Oh, it is. That it is. It's not, it's not quite the one-click by Amazon offer, but it's just two clicks, and that seems to get a lot of us. Yeah, it's probably a good thing that I don't have the 5S with the thumbprint reader because then it would be even easier. Yes. I have a really long password, and I go, oh, I really want to type that again. Maybe not. <laughs> it's funny how that is a barrier because I have, like, I have mine in one password, but oh, I have to change apps and then enter my password and click copy and then click paste. Yeah, maybe not. Yep. So diving into my least favorite section of the show, which is thankfully short for June, we have the legal updates. And uh, a story that I've been tracking for a very long time is uh, Samsung's legal team leaked confidential information that a judge ordered Apple to give them on condition they not, you know, that the lawyers not give it to Samsung. And then Samsung used that information to try to get a better deal out of Nokia. And I have thought this was a travesty since it first happened, must be a year and a half ago, if not more. And finally, there is a small amount of payback in the form of a $2 million fine. So they should be. 
Seems like it's not big enough. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money to me, but... Right. <laughs> but to someone like Samsung, $2 million doesn't seem like a whole lot of money. It's no, I, change I, I, in maybe, the, the couch cushion. Maybe that's the answer. They can give $2 million to each Apple user. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be well, good. It, it does also, of course... It, it, there's a bad publicity price to being fined $2 million because it is a lot of money, even if it isn't a lot of money to these big companies. Um... More, more sort of a sign of court cases slightly going away. Apple and, Sam- Apple and Samsung have both dropped their cases in the U.S. International Trade Commission, the USITC, against each other. But, of course, that has no effect on the ongoing patent war. So it, it seems that they're sort of consolidating the fight. Um, last month, I think it was Google dropped a bunch of cases. Um, no, but I don't think there's any sign of a lack of hostilities. Isn't, isn't that just a, a matter of concentrating on where they can get the best bang for their buck, as it were. Yeah, that's certainly my reading on it. Yeah. And then, finally, we get back to the lovely e-book case. Um, Apple reached a settlement with the States, and um, it has a rather large if in it. If Apple exhausts all of its appeals, then Apple will pay out to the States. And if they don't, they don't. And, uh, well, Apple say they're prepared to go the whole way up to the Supreme Court on this. So, on the one hand, you're seeing people say that Apple surrendered to the states, but on the other hand, by throwing in the clause that says, only after we've exhausted all of our appeals, I'm not sure it is a surrender. Well, it's kind of saying, we'll settle when we lose, which is not really settling. If we lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Um, and sort of a slightly related story, because... You know, Apple are in trouble for apparently being the monopolists in the ebook market, and at the same time, you have Amazon's little war with Hachette. And uh, strangely enough, Apple are rubbing it in a little bit. They have a, they had a big thing on their front page with a whole bunch of books that Amazon wouldn't sell, sitting front and center in their store. Good on that. Yeah. So now we get into the big meat, and goodness me, has it been a busy month. Um, so in the last show, we, we, we very, very quickly looked at some of the stuff from WWDC and we figured we'd give it a month to mature where we could have a, a more considered view of what all we saw and what all it means. So it's now been a month since WWDC and uh, I guess now is the time to talk about it. So first up, OS ten got itself quite a substantial lick of paint. Anyone have opinions, strong or otherwise, on that? Yeah, I, it's it's less than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a, a real you know iOS six versus iOS seven thing. But you know, I've I've run up the developer preview on a, an external drive just to have a quick look. Uh, it wasn't actually terribly responsive on my system, and I don't know if that's me or it. But it, it looks nice, and our mutual friend Alison Sheridan has been worrying about this uh, translucency business. But I think it's actually quite well done that. You, you do get a hint of the color from behind, but it's not distracting because it's just sort of a um, more sort of a tint than a you know, a picture showing through or anything like that. So it, it's, yeah, I'm sure it'll take getting used to, but I don't think it'll take as much getting used to as iOS 7 did. Now, you said it wasn't as big a change as you expected. Is that not as big a change as you feared or not as big a change as you expected? I don't fear these things. I've long gone past the point where it's like, oh, this is horrible. Well, I mean, I still complain about things when they break and don't work. But, you know, I'll upgrade on day one and just carry on. You know, 
I've done upgrades since I think Tiger was my first one. Um, so you know, mountain lion and lion natural scrolling. I just thought, hey, let's give this thing a go. Oh, look, that's quite neat. Whereas you know, a lot of the blogosphere went uh, completely nuts about natural scrolling, and I just got used to it. It's just you know, things are going to change, and if you don't like change, then don't upgrade. Yeah, well, you can't get clicks on your website if you're not complaining about things. So there's certainly that part of it. True. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's lovely. That's that's not Linkbait, is it? <laughs> um, in terms of compatibility, from what I can read, it's basically if your machine can run Mavericks, you can run um, Yosemite. Which is pretty good. Yeah, excellent. Um, Does this mean I don't have an excuse to run out and get a new Mac? Darn. I know. That's <laughs> uh, coming up. That's coming up. <laughs> sort of. I think there's a big one coming up about that. Excuses for new Macs, is there? Yes. Oh, yes. Don't worry. We'll get there. I'll mention okay, it. That's very cryptic. <laughs> I've, I've, read, I've read the show notes. I've written the show notes, and I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, we're going to get back to OS X in a minute, kind of because of the, change, the, the rest of the changes in OS X are very much tied into iOS 8, which I think probably, although it didn't get a bigger update, Look-wise, it may have gotten a bigger update anyway because Apple are opening things up by allowing third-party plugins into all sorts of bits and pieces of the OS, but they've managed to have their cake and eat it by keeping their security architecture in place and yet allowing third parties to do way more. Yeah, I found this very clever, the way they do it. Even even things like uh, accessing files from you know other apps containers is done very cleverly. I mean, you're you're a developer, Alistair, and you actually write stuff for you actually use Apple's tools, whereas I program, but not in any of the Apple languages because I really hated Objective C. Well, how does it pull that trick off? That one, uh, you, you'd understand that. I, th- I think it's just that I've watched uh, more of the videos. What they basically do is you still cannot access just anything in the file system. And when the user selects a file for your app to use, you get a symbolic link to that file. So that's the only way you can get into that other container is through that symbolic link, which is to a file. So you get full access to that file through the link and nothing else. Simple. So this is the same basic way that sandboxing works in OS ten. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a okay if the app asks on its own bold yeah very good i think half the planet went nuts when they said you could have your own keyboard (laughs) anyone on the panel particularly nuts about that in a good way well i'm I'm excited about it yeah i mean i use um i've got an android phone and i use swipe on it and i must admit i find it much a much more natural way and quicker way of inputting um, sentences generally. I'm certainly not of the uh, of the uh, school where I'm abbreviating everything. I tend to write sentences, and which probably annoys everyone I text and, and things. But uh, but yeah, I like swipe very much, and the fact that you'll be able to use a keyboard to do that okay. sounds like a good idea. For people who haven't had the joy of using swipe, can you just explain the idea behind it? So basically, you don't lift your finger off the keyboard. Uh, you just start uh, on the first letter of the word that you're about to do, and then you swipe across from letter to letter. Uh, and a little bit like um, when the first, uh, when the iPhone first came came about, um, 
and and it sort of made guesses um about what you actually meant to type rather than what you actually did type so that it gets the get it right swipe does exactly the same thing not only that swipe's also a learning keyboard so it it, it learns what you type which is even better so if you, if from for me for instance i'm quite often typing Erdington Methodist Church uh, and as soon as I start to type Erd, it says, ah, oh, you, you want Erdington. So it gives me the word Erdington and then Methodist, then church, because it knows I do that quite a lot. Um, and it just speeds things up. So, so you basically wiggle your finger around the letters, and then when you end a word, you lift it up, and then it figures out what could fit. That's right. And, and there's a little bar along the top of the keyboard, which is giving the suggested words as you go along. So if you're doing a really so do long you- word, you can just tap on it. Do you find, since you use that and the regular keyboard, that once you're used to it, is it faster to compose? Because I've only ever played with it briefly, and I found it a lot more slow than composing on a regular keyboard where I can type actually quite quickly with two thumbs, uh, but obviously I just wasn't used to it. So as someone who's used both extensively, is it actually faster using swipe? Uh, it is for me, but I'm I'm really a one-handed type uh, typer on, on the iPhone. Uh, oh, interesting, okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm not, I've never been a, a, someone who used both my thumbs to, to actually do stuff in that way. Um, so I don't know. I suppose it depends, it depends on your use case. But certainly for me, it's significantly faster. And when I have to pop back to my iPad and I have to type each letter one at a time, I'm definitely slower at it, even though, um, even though I'm a bit of a touch typist. So I taught, taught myself to touch type. Um, that's a different thing altogether. Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm, I've been uh, kind of complaining, if you will, about the iOS keyboard and how it hasn't changed at all and seeing all these other cool keyboard technologies come. It, without being able to use them, it's hard to say whether those technologies are actually better than just a traditional keyboard, but I guess now we'll finally have the chance to find out. And, of course, iOS 8 keyboard as well, its own built-in one is going to have a lot of that predictive technology in there, even to the point of predicting the style of language that you're using depending on who you're talking to which is very cool. Mm. It's funny, when Apple do it, it's cool because, well, because Apple are a company where you're the customer. But strange enough, when Google know that much about me, I feel weirded out. <laughs> it's because I'm not their customer. I'm not giving them any money and they know all this about me and they're using it to sell me. And when Apple do it, I go, oh, cool. The company I'm paying money is being really clever. Funny how motivation changes things. What was also clever about it, I think, um, uh, uh, the keyboard generally was um, the extensibility. So the fact that you could actually have keyboards that were built for specific purposes. Um, like, uh, I think the thing everyone I listened to was talking about was Text Expander and whether you could actually get Text Expander to build a keyboard so that it would automatically suggest your te- your snippets for you. That is, I guess, the one thing we've really missed. Um, like I, I'm such a big Text Expander user. I really miss it as soon as I get onto my iOS device because mm-hmm. I just have to be way more verbose than, than I would otherwise. Mm. Yeah, if they, if they can actually build that in at the OS level, and I don't, I don't see why they can't. I believe that that is part of what this will allow them to do to build in text expander just as we have it on the Mac today. To have that on iOS, regardless whether you're using the Apple keyboard or some other keyboard, that would be obviously very very nice. Now, one that I don't think they will get to do, which is a pity, because as soon as you hit, you come to secure content like a password, it doesn't let the third-party keyboards play ball anymore because that's a security risk because you're then giving someone else your passwords. So that means that one password can't quite jump in on this as easily as 
were hoping that Text Expander can. I had heard well, that they were very excited about this, so I don't know. If, yeah. Maybe what you're saying is totally correct. I don't know, but I had heard that, that, um, that they were quite excited about what this would mean for them. There was there was news recently of an I uh, one password for beta that uh, was getting a lot of people excited because it was uh, doing automatic fill-ins. So I don't know how that works, but I think they've managed it. Is that in the browser or? I I don't know. It it, it was a one password for beta. Um, there was some uh, NDA stuff around it, so I think the the discussion got quashed a little bit. But it sounded very interesting. Well, let's keep in mind, too, that for future devices, if they have the thumbprint reader and that API is opened up, then we won't even need to access that level. It's just a touch your thumbprint and be done with it. Yeah, prove on me and carry on. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, browser plugins are also part of this new plugin architecture. So I guess that's probably very exciting to the 1Password people. Well, yes. I mean, I haven't looked into the details of how all this stuff works, but... There was a chit chat across the pond segment on the No Cellarcaster a couple of episodes ago with Greg Scown from Smile, um, talking about the possibilities for Text Expander, and you know they had multiple possibilities of the ways that they might plug into the system. So I guess the same may be true for One Password. Yeah, that, that was actually good, a good segment. It was nice to hear developers talking about how excited they were, because mm. that always means there's cool stuff coming for us. <laughs> Um, I'm actually going to slightly jump order in the show notes here because really t- probably the biggest differentiator for Apple to come out of this is this notion that instead of our devices being islands, we have our Mac and maybe another Mac and then an iPhone and an iPad. They're all going to know when they're near each other and let you sort of pick up where you left off or, and even use the features of one through the other. So if your phone is near your Mac, your Mac suddenly develops the ability to make and take phone calls and if you're halfway through writing an email on one device and you put it next to another device, it's going to allow you to magically continue on where you were, say, maybe on the Mac where you have a bigger, better keyboard and whatnot. And what I think is so cool about that is no one else can do that. How can, how can Microsoft possibly compete with Apple on this kind of cool stuff? I don't think they can. <laughs> it's, it's the advantage of owning the whole, the, the whole thing, the horse and the cart and everything else. It's, that's what the Apple's big advantage is. And we're starting to see some of those really cool integrations that are simply not possible when you don't control every last piece of it. So I'm, I'm personally very excited about that. I, in my studio, I have a standing desk and whenever I have something long to read, I will take that opportunity to sit down and sitting down. I can't just pick up my iMac and go sit down. So that means grabbing my iPad, going, sitting down, loading up the same web page or whatever or article that I want to read to know that I can just, grab the iPad off my desk and sit down on the couch and tap one button and it's there. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, for me, it sounds silly, but the biggest thing for me is I, I keep on, I know my phone is in the house somewhere, but I don't really know where and I hear it ringing and stuff. Whereas just the thought that it'll just come to my Mac and I'll just click the button and it'll be fine. That, that has me very excited. Now, Bart, can you tell me what technology uses, is used by this uh, process? Boy, it seems to be the answer to life, the universe, and everything. It is before. <laughs> right. Ding, ding on my earlier point. Ah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, Mac Minis and MacBook Airs from 2011. Not bad. MacBook Pro and iMac from 2012, the year after I got my MacBook Pro. Thank you. Oh. Uh, and, of course, the Mac Pro, the new one. So... 
Uh, there are four Macs in this house uh, going back as far as 2007. They will all run Yosemite and none of them will have Bluetooth LE. Oh, I've just noticed that my MacBook Pro doesn't. My iMac doesn't. Yeah. Um, That's for, the rush out and buy new Macs. For people who want to follow <laughs> along at home, if you click on the little Apple icon and then you go down to About This Mac and then you click on More Information and then you click on System Report, you probably can't follow along that quickly, and then you click on Bluetooth and then you have to scroll down to something called LMP version. If it says 0x6 or higher, then you win and you get to play along with the coolness. And if, like me, you see 0x4, you don't get to play along. Yay, yes. my Mac Mini's got 0x6. Excellent. <laughs> yep, me too. 0x6, yay. So out of the three, on one machine at least. Out of the three Macs I use, I, get, I win on one. And I win on none. <laughs> well, there you go. Time to go shopping. Don't you think um, the whole of WWDC seem, seems almost as if Apple had a big meeting and they sat down and they said, okay, what is it that makes us different to everybody else? Don't you think? Because quite a lot of the things that came out were like this. There were things that they could do that everyone else would struggle to do because, well, because of what Joseph just said, really, that they, they own the whole thing. I think you're right. And I, th- I would like to think that this keynote puts the nail in the, well, Apple is doomed under Tim Cook coffin, but <laughs> probably not. No, probably not. It should. Um, so let me see what else got a nice bit of, of TLC that, that, that stretches between the, the Mac and iOS and that would have to be I think iCloud and I know a lot of people have been really critical of iCloud because it sticks your files into your apps instead of into some sort of magic folder or a Dropbox but my understanding of that has always been that Steve Jobs wanted the file system to become optional because it just confuses the hell out of people who are not nerds frankly and now you get to have your cake and eat it too the way I see because iCloud is retaining those little folders that belong to each individual app and so if you save something in Pages it's in Pages' little box and every version of Pages you open on every other Mac or every iOS device you have the document there and there's no worrying about where you put it but for people who like more you can now just put stuff into iCloud a la Dropbox you can just make your own folders and drag and drop in your own stuff and also easily see the stuff in the special folders from your Mac and I think this is cool. And I'm wondering if everyone else is as excited. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's critical because it's, for me, I love, I use Pages, Numbers, Keynote. I use all those. I love those apps. And I love that I can access those files uh, through iCloud on my iOS device and desktop, whatever. But I tend to work on projects. I'll have, for example, a client project that is for this particular shoot or whatever it may be. And Lots of documents go into there. There's pages documents, there's numbers spreadsheets, there's PDFs, there's pictures, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into this one folder. And so to not be able to navigate to that project folder uh, from pages and still be in iCloud has been very, very frustrating. So having everything the way that I'm used to, being able to put all of my documents, regardless of where they come from, into one location and access those over iCloud is the best of both. And it means that if you don't want to use a file system, you don't have to. But if you do, you can, and you couldn't. Yeah, that, that's been one of two big um, problems for me with iCloud. Number one, as Joseph said, I have assets that I, I use in multiple documents. Where do I put those? 
you know, I have pictures that I need to drag into um, table cells, which, yes, you can now actually do in, uh, in uh, pages. Couldn't for a while there. Um, but, yeah, where do I keep those pictures? And the biggest one for me, and I don't think this has been covered, but I'm not sure because I haven't actually heard anything either way, is sharing. I work on these documents. I give them to my wife to proofread, and she can you know, fix some typos. Can I do that? without having to make her log in with the same iCloud ID and all the fun that that creates. Well, I think so, because I think one of the demos that they showed, wasn't there a real-time collaborative editing going on? Wasn't that one of the demos from WWDC? That was from from whatever event they announced the new iWorkout, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the one before, wasn't it, I think? Was it? Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, we, we should have that ability, no problem. We do, Yeah. Have, a problem. <laughs> it just works a on a link. problem. And we don't have a way to lock it down. Lock it down how? As in, only these people can see it, rather than here's a link and whoever has the link can get out the shared document. But oh, well, you can password protect it, though. Because I, uh, I share documents with people over iCloud who I know they're just logging in on a, on a browser, hmm. and I can password protect those documents. So, yeah, someone else can go to there with the link, and if they have the password, they can get in. But, um, but that's, as far as I know, that works just fine. Okay, I didn't know about the password bit. The last time I looked at it, it was just if you had the magic link. Okay, that's good. I think my um, my only concern, and, uh, and it's a concern that's been about since they allowed iOS to share documents with um, OS X, is, is this compatibility thing. Um, it's all very well being able to have a central storage area, but if you open the document on your iPad and it changes it, a way, in a way that you don't want it to. That's still, as far as I'm concerned, that's still a bit broken. Is that yeah. still happening to you with the newest versions of Pages and stuff? Uh, I, I just stopped opening things on my iPad because every time I did it said, oh, this might break it. So yeah, that's interesting. The only place I've run into it. that is with fonts. Because yes. obviously you don't have all the fonts that you have on your desktop. You can't have those on iOS. And that that yeah, is still frustrating. Can, did you know you can have the fonts? Yes. And I have a blog post showing you how to do it manually if you don't want to spend the dollar or whatever it is. It would have been God, nice. I need it, this. <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice. Um, that was very helpful, by the way, um, Alistair. Um, I found that very useful. But uh, at the same time, it would be nice if, as part of this um, move to a, a filing system as such, if if they'd found a way around that so that basically it would say, Oh, you appear to have um, a font on the, uh, that you're using in this that isn't on your iPad. However, it is on your Mac, so I'll go and get it. That would be the proper way to do it. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully that's something they will address. Because my understanding is that the whole reason that iWork did the strange thing of getting less features last December-ish, and near the end of last year anyway, yeah. was because they were making it one engine across all of their OSs. And therefore, the the kind of thing where, apart from the font issue, there will be very, you know, it is the same engine, therefore you don't have this kind of thing of where it's utterly rewriting your files on you all the time. And I, I think you can put a pin in this one because I have a feeling we're going to be making this, the, this discussion is going to come up again a little bit later on when we talk about photography. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't want to derail us from that just yet. Um Something else that sort of caught my eye from the end user point of view rather than the developer's point of view, because we're going to get to developers in a minute because they had a great time. 
uh, is also family sharing, which is one of those things where, again, Apple have solved a real and genuine problem. Because you can now have your own Apple account for all of the members of your family. Say that up to six of you are in the one family, and then although you keep using your own account, you can now access the stuff bought on the others' accounts in your family. Yeah, too late for me. Too late? Well, I can, I can share with my wife, but she just logs into the uh, app store with my ID anyway and has done for, for ages. But the interesting restriction on that is if, if I understood it correctly, you have to have the same credit card registered in all of those accounts. Yeah, I think that's how they prove your family. So I have to put my credit card details into my child's Apple ID? Yes, doesn't sound... It, it yeah. on your phone to say that your kid wants to buy this. Are you okay with that? Which yeah, I think is very cool. So it's like a token rather than a, a charge card at that point. Yeah, so they basically get a supervised they get supervised access to your credit card. Yeah, right. and instead of them having to bring the phone or iPod, whatever, to you to say, hey, can you enter this password so I can download this free app or can I buy this app, Dad? You can just say, you get a pop-up on your screen that says, your kid wants to get this free app or buy this app, and you can learn more from there. What is this? What is it they're trying to get? And they make a decision. Um, what I'm curious about is how that evolves to, to as the kid matures and goes off on their own and has their own money. So like, I've got a daughter that's she's still several years away from going to college. But if I switch over to this system now, and she can use this now, and, and you know, when she goes to high school, I'll get her an iPhone, and then she'll have all this great access, and I'm going to pay for these things for now. But then she goes, to, goes off to college, and suddenly, you know what? You're on your own now, and you've got to deal with this on your own. You've got to use your own money. Will those apps that I've bought before, will she somehow be able to access those, or is that all going to go away, and that she has to start over? And what about the music and everything else? And that's, that's a curious part of it. I'm wondering mm-hmm. how that handoff will happen. I believe the answer to that was if it was purchased under her Apple ID, even though via your credit card, then she gets to keep it, and in fact, you don't. Yes. Interesting. But if she's using a lot of shared stuff from you, then she'd lose access to that, because that's on your account. Okay. Which is, oh, that's so interesting. It's important that you buy oh. it from the account of the person who primarily needs something, because that's whose account it sort of really belongs to. Sure. And, and there, that's, there's logic to that. You know, a lot of yeah. the apps or music that your kids want you probably don't really care too much about I think a big advantage is that you're not going to see a whole bunch of music you really really hate next time you look in iCloud (laughs) (laughs) and that's and that's fair I mean he got a big cheer didn't it at WWDC so I guess there are quite a lot of people there have had kids who've run up bills of two or three hundred (laughs) dollars well that's true Um, actually in a story that didn't make the show notes but I'm going to wedge it in here anyway Amazon are actually looking to go to court so as not to have to implement more protections to stop kids buying stuff without their parents' permission. Mm. Which, which is absolutely nuts to me. It, yeah, it doesn't make sense. He basically said, please make these changes for the protection of kids, and they went, no, we'll see you in court. Delightful. Yeah. Of course, this is a much better approach, in my opinion. And it's, it's even if you don't have kids, even if there's just two of you in the family, it's still useful, because up until now, myself and my partner have always been each logging into both of our iTunes accounts on all of our Macs. So we can both listen to the music that between us we've bought. Whereas now we just mush, you know, we just add each other as family, problem solved. So next up, I guess we have sort of the not user-facing stuff, or at least not the stuff that's user-facing to us straight away, but it will be in the future. 
So we have, I, I don't remember how many Kabillion APIs there were, but it was a lot of new APIs. And I think Apple were saying it's like the most new APIs there's ever been. Plus 4,000, I think. That's a lot of APIs. That's a lot. So on the one hand, we have um, what we expected, which was HealthKit, where iOS sort of acts as gatekeeper. Is that a fair way to describe it? Gatekeeper of your health information that, you know, you all of your apps send their information to this one central repository and you then decide which apps can reach into each other's information. I think we should call it a wrangler. Yeah. And... Again, we come back to my whole thing of follow the money, because I'm obsessed with that concept that I want my data to be with people around the customer. And so who am I going to trust to manage my health data? Do I want it to be a company who sells ads or do I want it to be a company who sells me stuff? And that's why I think HealthKit is very appealing to me, whereas a similar service from a cloud provider would probably scare the pants off me. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Go ahead, sorry. The, one of the um, the biggest questions over this, I heard um, on the Accidental Tech podcast, they had been talking about it and they got some feedback from a doctor and some other uh, medical professional. And they were saying that uh, the problem with medical data is context and that just re- recording a lot of the data that you might actually be able to get with sensors on the body is not actually that useful without context. And a lot of it doesn't actually change that much, so it's not even interesting to look at. So it'd be interesting to see how this actually develops in in terms of real-world collection of data and provision of data to some medical professional to to assess. I think what they summarized was it's useful background information, but if if you have a graph of uh, blood oxygen level, if that starts moving, you might already be dead, sort of thing. <laughs> there is no more oxygen in your blood. Seek medical attention yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's normally, you know, bounces around within a, this tiny um, set of limits. Uh, you know, you'd have to, to cut out the scale to actually make it look interesting. And if it ever moves outside of that, then it's, you know, already too serious to be worrying about your phone saying, you should go and make an appointment with your doctor. It's interesting because I, I thought of HealthKit from a very different point of view, from the point of view of my tracking my fitness rather than from the point of view of yes. health professionals. So I do a lot of cycling and I have, and I do a lot of walking and I have one app I use to track one and a different app I use to track the other and at the moment, the, never the twain shall meet. But with HealthKit, I can actually start to get a sensible view of my aggregate exercise instead of just little islands of data in each app. Yeah. Because, of course, the other advantage is then if you do have something wrong with you and you go to your doctor and they say, oh, well, the reason this is happening to you is you don't get enough exercise, you can say, look, I do. <laughs> and actually, Nick, that, that was another point that was brought up by these um, medical professionals was if you do have a known condition, then there will be certain factors that you want to keep an eye on and it will be useful for that. Yeah, I think that's huge. I think of a friend who's a diabetic and I've known him for years and years and there have been instances where we've been traveling or been out somewhere together and he disappears. And I go into panic mode because I don't know. I know he, he can be very volatile. What the heck just happened? Is he is he locked in his room? Is he passed out in the bathtub? Or what's happened? And, uh, you know, turns out he's just taking a nap. But without knowing and having that ability to have something, if something does go wrong for medical professionals to be notified or friends and family nearby to be notified, uh, that's huge. I mean, that's really, really big. 
And other chronic conditions, like if you need to watch your blood pressure, it's actually like the, there's a whole syndrome around, you know, when a doctor takes your blood pressure, it puts up your stress, therefore your blood pressure looks artificially high, whereas if you just have sort of some random measurements taken when you're least expecting it by your phone, it may actually prove to be health, you know, better data. And you get to track it not over a doctor's visit or even over a 24-hour period like the monitor they might give you from the hospital. You could just have that data tracking you throughout your whole life, which is probably mm. much more help to your doctor than just some snapshots. Absolutely. Yeah, if the rumors of the iWatch are true, then a lot of that type of data should be monitored through that. And yeah, exactly. You have a 24-7 tracking of a lot of parts of your health, and that can be huge. I believe uh, I believe po- it, the, um, the blood pressure thing is uh, known as white coat syndrome. That was it. My brain was looking for that word, and I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I suffer from it. <laughs> so if I the if, first time I went to have my blood pressure taken in the hospital, I think they were ready to throw me into into A and E. Yeah, yes. So the first, whenever I go to my doctor to have my blood pressure taken, um, uh, because I have suffered with slightly high blood pressure, um, it basically he the doctor knows me and he takes my blood pressure five times because he knows what the first time he takes it, it'll be something ridiculous. And then by the time he's taken it five times, I've calmed down. And he says, yeah, it's okay now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, uh, I think they only took mine three times, but the first time the nurse was like, that's a bit unusual. Anyway, <laughs> um, the other one then is your house. <laughs> Apple seemed to... Now, I don't think this got much keynote time, but I have a feeling this could develop into something really cool where lots of different people who make hardware for automating your home stuff are going to talk HomeKit API and then your phone can sort of magically glue it all together is my understanding. that catch anyone else's eye? Absolutely. I'm, I use uh, SmartThings. I started building some systems off of that for my studio. And I don't have a lot in here yet, but I've got temperature monitors, uh, light controls, uh, switches, you know, on-off switches for fans and those sorts of things. And the interface for it, frankly, is abysmal. It is, it is an example of how not to do things. But the technology, the hardware ability is so awesome. And there's so many other things out there. You've got your Hue light bulbs. You've got thermostats like the nest thermostat and to be able to have all of those things connected to each other is the promise of home automation that we've been waiting for for 20 years and i think that this is going to be very very exciting and what and what with the um with uh, apple knowing where your device is then there's no reason why it shouldn't switch your lights on as you get home and and all those other sorts of things presumably Right, and I already have that with smart things. So as I come to the studio, it knows because of my iPhone. Or if you're not an a, a iPhone user or Android user or maybe you just want to give one to your kid or something, there's a little keychain fob that you can have that does basically the same thing. It's a proximity sensor. So you have yeah. a little hardware proximity sensor or connect it to your iPhone. And as I approach the studio, it knows that I'm here and it goes into I'm here mode and the lights come on at 70% brightness and any other number of things can happen. I don't have a whole lot plugged into it yet, but that's you know that all can be done. And then when I leave, the lights automatically go off. If the temperature hits a certain point, then a vent fan kicks on. There's things like that that are in place now, and it can just grow into some very cool, very cool systems. It does sound cool. I think it's probably important that, that Apple get in here early when there aren't too many devices in the market yet, because the last thing you want is for there to be 20 different protocols and for you to have to sort of lock in the 20 different places to set up your cool stuff. Well, I don't think that they're in here early at all. I think that the protocols have been there, and X10's been around for, uh, what, at least 20 years. And this whole idea of home automation has been a promise of the future. I mean, gosh, you could probably find illustrations go back to the 50s that talk about home automation. 
and it just <laughs> hasn't materialized there's because there's been too many different protocols and no one's talking to each other and that's gotten better the smart things is as for as abysmal as the interface is the, the protocols are there so that you i can actually connect it to a nest um, i don't own a nest so i haven't tried it to see how good or bad that process is but uh, in theory at least it's possible uh but for apple to be doing this for apple to be giving us this control that to me is much bigger because we all know that they're they're the ones who can do an interface that actually works that makes sense and if the hardware companies it's the same thing with cameras i think if, if the hardware companies can just focus on making the hardware and let somebody else do the software who actually gets software we'll all be better off yeah, reference our earlier conversation about Apple owning it, owning the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to race us through the last of this WWDC stuff because I want to get on to the other stories. So, as well as all the, you know, as well as what we talked about already, there's a whole new programming languages for developers to get stuck into. Um, in fact, I had a listener from the show email in to say that as well as Swift, which is the new sort of big language to replace Objective-C, there's also they're also opening up a whole bunch of APIs through JavaScript so that you can actually do instead of AppleScript, which I've always found a difficult language to to write, you can now use JavaScript to automate stuff and to write small apps. So that that to me, you know, there's so many people with JavaScript skills because of the web. That sounds exciting to me to get more people scripting the Mac. Mm-hmm. And then for game developers, they wanted closer access to the hardware. They wanted to get down to the metal. So Apple went, okay, here's an API. We'll call it Metal. Have a nice day. Um, and what else the, for, for us uh, for Shutterbugs there's also more camera control so our apps are going to be able to do more with the camera which I am just delighted about because really I just want an exposure compensation dial that, that would make me happy if, if someone did just that but you know, I, hopefully they get to do loads of cool stuff anything else anyone wants to throw in that we haven't discussed yet that is worthy of a mention Actually, I have a question about Swift. I'm not a developer, a programmer at all. That stuff is all Greek to me. Um, with Swift, does it make it easier to, if you're going to write an app for iOS or OS X, does it make it easier to do an app for both? Is there some way that when you're writing it, you're kind of in some way writing for both platforms? Do you want to jump into not, that? Yeah, not really as such. Um, I mean, it's a shared language between the two platforms, but so was Objective-C. The big difference, um, it, it's kind of at the, at the low level that, that the change has been made. You know, the 4,000 APIs that were added to iOS 8, that's 4,000 uh, features and functions that, that developers will need to get their heads around. Well, not all of them, obviously. And those 4,000 and the equivalent 4,000 on the Mac can be quite different. Uh, but separately to Swift, they have actually been bringing uh, frameworks from one platform to the other. So I think one of the the biggest um, wants from the development community that I've seen talked about is bringing a lot of the um, user interface stuff that's on iOS. You know, you, you can create an app that's got, um, you know, a scrolling list and buttons and all that sorts of stuff very, very easily because you just drag a scrolling list onto your canvas and you drag some buttons on and you literally drag wires between them and you have an app whereas you can't currently do that on the Mac. So people are looking for Apple to bring these APIs to the Mac so that you can do those things quickly. And when they do that, there may be some synergy between the two, but the difference, uh, Bart, you've said this many times uh, in reference to the Microsoft direction of you know one operating system to be 
jammed into every different platform paradigm. Um, the difference between a touch interface and a, and a, a mouse interface is, is quite substantial and the amount of screen real estate you have on a typical Mac um, brings different design decisions into the into play as well. So, yeah, there, there may be some benefits to writing the same code and you know and using it in two different places, but I don't think Swift is a is a huge advance on that. Okay, Alistair, my understanding is that if it starts with Core, it's common to both. Is that correct? So, like Core Audio is for both, Core Video is for both. Yeah, there are some like that, but I think the big one is is UIKit on iOS, which is to say, you can create an app in in minutes with UIKit on iOS, and on the Mac, you have to go back old school. Is it fair to say that you could write the brains once and then stick two different UIs on the same brains? Oh, you could. Uh, you, know, you, you could encapsulate a, you know, here's how to take a, I don't know, blood pressure figure and, and do some fantastical uh, analysis on it. Um, but that's, that's true even today with um, Objective-C. You still have the core programming language is the same. It's just all these APIs that you have to use to interface with the user that are quite markedly different. My only question about Swift, uh, and I haven't looked at it, um, even though I've had a double with uh, Objective-C, um, is from what I saw uh, in the keynote, when is a new language a new language? Because what it looked to me is that it was the same language, but but the syntax was different. Well, that makes it a new language, doesn't it? Yeah, a, a language is largely syntax. Like the Objective C syntax was. Um, yes, I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, like you know, most of our programming languages are at least vaguely C-like. But Objective C, despite its name, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least to most, you know, to anyone who's programming C, C plus plus, Java, JavaScript, Perl. I could go on. It looks like we sort of expect languages to look. I mean, I mean, I, I have tried to learn Objective-C more times than I can shake his ticket, and I've never gotten very far. But I went through the first few chapters of the Swift book quite swiftly, if you'll excuse the terrible pun. And, <laughs> and you have no objection. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it seems a much nicer language to work in. Uh, but I'm actually quite excited about it, because I, th- I think this time I am going to win, and I'm actually going to learn how to program for Max instead of being beaten by Objective-C. <laughs> well, yeah. In that case, I might I mean, have another look at it as well. <laughs> I, I never learned C, so you know, I, when I started with Basic, and I, I've played with Java and, and various other languages for short periods of time, and some that I, that I won't actually mention because they'll bend your brain. But the thing about um, Objective C for me that I struggle with is I got the hang of of you know method calls and and all the sort of higher level stuff like that but it's the it's the underlying C stuff that conf- confuses the heck out of me things like um, as you discussed on the Nocilla cast with um, type safe languages you know when is a number not a number I've had so many bugs in developing my, my applications because I have said I take this number and I divide it by that scale and I and I get my resulting number and I get some wild and wacky answer and the simple problem is that I'm dividing a float by an integer and it seems to think that that must be given an integer answer and this is you know C behavior is is arcane is the word that I would give it and so what Swift does is it says okay we're still going to have some of these these basic um, things that you can only deal with um, you know numbers of the same type but we're now going to force 
make that obvious that you're doing silly things rather than just just you know carrying on and and uh, giving out weird answers. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to move us on, and well, I'm going to try to do a subtle segue, which is really ruined by the fact that I said I was going to do it. One of the things that got almost no airtime, they almost sort of went, oh, by the way, just telling you about this, and then carried on, was they said, oh, yeah, there's an app called Photos coming. It's going to be cool. It's going to tie into iCloud. It's coming later. Moving on. And that was sort of a, oh, that's interesting. And then later on in the month, the um, other shoe fell, as it were. And uh, Apple, they didn't make a public announcement. They just sort of contacted some journalist types who went, oh, here's a statement for you. We're discontinuing Aperture and iPhoto, and we're just giving you photos instead. And um, I think it's fair to say a lot of people lost their heads. And one particularly insightful article I read was over on Aperture Expert. And that's why I immediately clicked the contact button and said, Joseph, would you please come on to our podcast and talk to us about this? So, Joseph, do you want to give us your take on this? Certainly. So essentially, as you said, uh, Apple decided to discontinue development for both iPhoto and Aperture and instead focus on something called photos. And that's something is going to be out early next year. No exact date, but early 2015 is what they've said. And that is meant to replace both iPhoto and Aperture. What we know about that is that uh, the plus side of this, the advantage of all this, is that Apple is being able to throw away all the old code, everything that was Aperture and iPhoto, much of which is over a decade old code, and start over. Uh, starting clean is one of those things you just have to do every once in a while, especially if you want to take advantage of these new technologies, new processes that are just, uh, just, just weren't even a glimmer in anyone's eye a decade ago. If you want to take advantage of those things, sometimes you just have to start over. It's really the only clean way to do it. So the promise of what we will get over you know, starting next year and as it develops is phenomenal. I think the new version, the new photos, is going to be a very, very cool app. The disadvantage the problem with all this of course is that number one is after years we've been waiting for a major release for years now and now we know it's never coming and in fact when its replacement does come it is not going to be as capable as aperture is today so photos 1.0 will be undoubtedly a very cool fantastic app but it is also undoubtedly going to be more iphoto like than aperture like so we're going to have to wait even longer to see those features come in so it's two sides of that. It's one of those necessary evils. Uh, I think that the the community at large uh, has been very negative about it at first and then slowly accepting that this is just the way of things and this is the way it's going to go and we will all be better off for it in the future. But for now, it just hurts and we have to either sit where we are with the, the feature set that we've got or make the decision to move over to the competition. And that's a tough decision for a lot of people to make. Joseph, you said something very interesting. You said that every now and then you have to start over. And I think that one of the reasons I love Apple is that they do that. Whereas Microsoft find it spectacularly difficult to do that. Microsoft don't start over. Microsoft take all of their baggage with them all of the time. And Adobe seems to do the same. So you have these giant big bloaty apps that are trying to keep backwards compatibility for 20 years and all this kind of stuff. Exactly. You just kind of go, yeah, we're going to rip off the band-aid here. It's gone. (laughs) You like those floppy disks? Not anymore, you don't. Well, that's perfect correlation. The floppy disk, the DVD drive, removable batteries. These are things that Apple has the only company that had the cojones to say, you know what, done. We're getting rid of it. Yes, we're going to piss off some people. Uh, We'll supply a patch for this for a little while. But ultimately, get over it. Floppy disk is dead. Fixed media, solid media is dead. Uh, If you can't access it online, 
um, then, you know, find another way. But that's basically, that's the future. And let's get on board now. And I guess the, the sort of I said we tie this back to the um, iWork discussion, but with iWork they basically went we have these two apps that don't really work well together. We're going to rewrite them both from the ground up, and the iOS app got more feature rich, but the Mac app temporarily took a fairly serious hit in, in features, especially sure. the high end features. Like there was no Apple script on day one, and people freaked out. Oh my God, we've dumbed down the Mac. It's been iOSified, and Apple Apple actually went no 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 no. It's coming back. We just we couldn't get back to where we were instantly. Stay tuned, and lo and behold, as time has gone by, those features have come right back. And I would argue that iWork now is as good as iWork ever was, only now it works across both platforms, and so I think we're better off than where we started. Precisely. And the most recent similar example of this is the transition from Final Cut Pro 7 to Final Cut Pro 10. It was a, a virtually identical thing where the old had to be thrown away. They started from scratch, but the the new, when it first came out, was quite future poor compared to the old version. Final Cut Pro 10 version 1 was not robust at all. It had great promise, but it just wasn't there. And when Apple did that, I think they made a, a huge mistake in how that was handled in the marketing of it and even the, the software itself because they essentially stopped selling Final Cut Pro 7, started selling Final Cut Pro 10, and told all editors that this is your new editor, come on board. And people did because they believed and they came over and were bitten hard. And that wasn't a good experience. And Apple relented and eventually re-released Final Cut Pro 7, uh, let that be re-downloaded, repurchased. And then over years, of course, as they had always planned to, continue to develop Final Cut 10. And that got to a point where it is today where it's, it's fantastic. It does way more than the old one did. And it's doing it easier, better, faster. It's just an overall a much superior application. And that's what we're seeing now, except that Apple learned the lesson of how to handle it. And instead of just surprising everybody and saying, Aperture's dead, it's time to move over to photos. They said, well, Aperture, we're going to stop developing it, but we are going to support it at minimum through Yosemite. There will be a maintenance release so that Aperture works 100% compatible with Yosemite. So you know you've got at least until the fall of 2015. And that's only if you want to stay on the absolute current OS. Um, I like to remind people that you don't, just because an OS comes out doesn't mean you have to upgrade. And if you're locked into an Aperture on Yosemite workflow and whatever is after Yosemite comes out and Aperture isn't, uh, updated for that. You don't have to update your system. You can maintain that for many, many years to come. Um, obviously, it's not preferred. It's not ideal, but it will work. It's not like your pictures are going to disappear. So that is there. Apple's learned the lesson. They've done this in a very nice way where they've given people a good nine months notice before Photos even comes out so you can think about the transition. You can wait until Photos comes out, decide whether you want to make the transition then or wait until you know several months later, another six, nine months, whatever it may be, when when Aperture may no longer be supported and then make the decision if it's time to switch. And it's it's given us a nice timeline and it's a, it's a good way to handle it. They've done much better this time than they did with Final Cut for sure. Yeah, we, we've all put our hair on fire, had time to put it out again and think about it and it's still not out yet. So, you know, no one's going to rush into this unprepared. Right. The one, the one difference between this and the Final Cut is that if it was exactly the same, they would be rewriting, oh, sorry, they would have rewritten Final Cut and called it Movies, and there would have been no iMovie as well. So the thing with Final Cut is it was still the pro-level app, so they didn't, yeah. I don't think they threw away a lot of the pro-level features. I mean, it was still way better than iMovie when it came out, whereas now it's it's a melding of the, the consumer and the prosumer slash pro software. And so I think the concern is that too much is going to be taken out. 
Well, I, I don't disagree with that, but I think that the difference, the delta between your amateur videographer and pro editor versus the amateur photographer and the pro photographer, the difference in the tool set that they need is quite vast. It, it, the difference between what a Hollywood editor needs and what grandma needs to cut together a couple of uh, video clips shot on their iPhone is massive. That's a huge, huge difference. The difference between what grandma needs to adjust the picture taken on her iPhone and the average high, maybe not top-end professional, but at least the high-end prosumer user, they essentially need the same things. They need to be able to fix the exposure, to do crops and adjustments, and a couple other you know, interesting looks to their photo, and that's where it largely ends until you get into the massive Photoshop space of massive layering and massive compositing, which Aperture never did or even tried to do. So it was, it's not like we're saying throw away Photoshop and go with photos. We're saying throw away Aperture and go with photos. And the difference there is not that big. And I think that I think it will work out well. And I think the way that it's being designed, the controls that we have or uh, will have in photos, I think are going to appeal very nicely to both ends of the spectrum. And iPhoto yeah. and Aperture have been moving closer together for a long time now. Because sure. I remember the, when I first got iPhoto, it was a destructive editor. It would yep. take your, it would save your file as an original, but every edit you made was effectively destructive, and you could never undo your slider changes and go back and stuff. And then, then iPhoto developed the sort of very aperture-like, non-destructive editing, and then their library formats actually became the same recently enough, where basically the same library can be opened in both apps. And so obviously that means that iPhoto understands all the same adjustments that Aperture can do. It just doesn't show as many of them in its UI. Precisely. And that's what we're going to see when we move to photos. So your library, your existing library, will be able to be opened in photos as it is today. There, it's pretty plain that there will not be all the same controls. So let's just pick one at random, like Curves, for example. Let's just say that Curves is not in Photos 1.0. If you open an Aperture library into Photos that curves adjustment will still be applied. You'll be able to remove it or disable it, but you won't be able to adjust it. You won't be able to change that curve. You can turn it off and then add some other adjustment, but uh, until curves is reintroduced into photos, you'll basically be locked into a on or off situation with it. Yeah, Kind of all we've seen so far is a screenshot, and I know it's not a very good metric, but there seem to be a lot of sliders in the screenshot, which gives me some hope. Yeah, I did a, a analysis, if you will, of that screenshot on After Expert just a, earlier this week, just a few days ago. And it was very much, it wasn't just, oh, look what's out there. As I was doing it, it was very much an interesting exercise in trying to decipher what these sliders mean. And some of them are obvious and some aren't. Uh, some names don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. So it's kind of a, a bit of a mystery as to what they are. But what we did see in there is that the vast majority, in that one screenshot, the vast majority of the controls that we do need and I'm not saying everything that we want is there, but that we need is right there. And that in itself is great. And Apple's already said as well that we, we will have plugins for photos. And we don't know yet exactly what that means or how that works. But that does tell us as well that just because a function isn't available in photos doesn't mean that a third party can't build a plugin to do exactly that function that we need. I'm actually The more I think about this, actually, the more hopeful I get because... You know, it was always a bit odd. Like, Aperture's UI never quite fit in with all the other Apple stuff because it's a, it was a product they bought, and the UI never quite felt Apple-like. No, Aperture wasn't bought. Aperture was made in-house. No, no. Okay. Totally in-house developed. 
Okay, I'm completely wrong about that. But why does it have a different <laughs> UI then? Because the buttons and stuff in Aperture don't look like normal Apple buttons. Well, they they look more like the pro side of things, right? Your the dark UI is this kind of quote unquote pro look, and if you compare it to Final Cut Pro 10 or compare it to Logic Pro, then you will see a more similar look and feel. And I'm not saying that the sliders and everything are exactly the same; they do have their own unique take to them. But it's more that's how it looks. It's that dark quote unquote pro UI that was adopted there. Okay, so I, the only pro app of the traditional pro apps I ever owned was Aperture, so I guess that's why it looked alien to me. Yeah, fair enough, then. Okay. Um, anyone else have any thoughts on, on our photography feature? I know, Alistair, you're a fellow Shutterbug. Did we lose Alistair? Have, have we lost our New Zealand friend? No, we've just lost the mute button. Ah. There we go. <laughs> so, sorry, what, I, what I did say in response to your question, um, the one thing that just popped out of this conversation for me is... You know, if there are missing features, then third parties, you know, Topaz, hello, uh, can put plugins in. And they can do that on iOS as well. So that's a huge, huge uh, leap forward to be able to do the same kinds of things. You know, Topaz adjust or, or you know, Starburst effects or whatnot on your iPhone. Yeah, yep. I, I may be in a minority of one on this, but I am utterly unexcited about editing on my iOS device because I can't color calibrate it, and I am just a sticker for that. Yeah, but see, there's so much more that you can do before you get to the point where color has to be flawless. And even if it's just, even if you don't trust the screen, mm-hmm. you can still do your levels adjustments. You can do basic looks, and let's face it, not everything needs to be color calibrated perfect. If you're doing an edit for an image just to show the client on set, this is what, you know, when we look at the raw file, it's, it's flat. This is not interesting. Let me do some quick adjustments to it. This is basically what it's going to look like, and you know, it'll get better from here. Or for the client to be able to say on set, well, you know, I, I actually, I've seen this thing where the blacks aren't quite so dark. It's a little bit flatter. Oh, yeah, okay, we'll lift the blacks. Okay, I can do that. Show you what that looks like. Yes, I love it. Now I'll continue to tweak that. But the beauty there is that the tweak is already made. If we have this iCloud synced library, the adjustment that I make on my iPad is going to show up on my desktop as well. And that's enormous. Or the, the idea that I'm sitting at my desk doing work, I run out to a client meeting and I grab my iPad and I show them the images on the iPad. And I didn't have to export them, upload them as a photo stream or anything else. They're just there. And while I'm there, the client says, well, can you change this? Can you do that? Let's do this a bit different. To be able to do that on the iPad and then come back to the studio and that work has already been done, which I can now refine. To me, that's huge. Okay, I hadn't thought of it like that. So you can do a rough edit in the field and then finesse on your way home. And you don't Absolutely. Really work. Absolutely. Or just even from your personal photography point, you know, I, I am a professional photographer. That is the other half of my living. And I do obviously do client shoots, but of course I shoot for myself as well, out traveling or whatever. So say you're on a trip, whether you're a professional or just a, an amateur or whatever, you've got a nice camera, a nice mirrorless camera. You're out there uh, shooting with this camera and you want to bring those pictures into your iPad so you can look at them on your holiday, put them up on the TV in your hotel room or just play with them or whatever. You just want to capture them. So you can do that. Make your basic edits, make your slideshows, upload them to Facebook, do all of those things. And then when you get home, everything you've done is already there on your desktop. That's enormous. The ability to not have to come back and start over, which is what you essentially have to do today, is huge. None of the edits that we do, even in iPhoto for iOS today, carry over at all to the desktop. Uh, 
it's it's abysmal basically the way it is today. So you really do have to start over completely or just say, right, just like iPhoto of your, these will be baked in permanently and I'll have two files side by side, my original and my edited one. And there's no undo. And that's that's terrible. But that is all going away. Now, so you just hit on something important there. So, you, like, I, I'm a, you know, I enjoy photography, but it's entirely for fun. I, I don't get, I don't make, you know, it doesn't affect whether or not there's bread on my table. And so I'm perfectly happy to jump into photos and play around because my livelihood doesn't depend on it. But as a pro, surely this has got to be a very scary time. I mean, I, um, Antonio Rosario, who is on our photo show from time to time, is a pro photographer who uh, made the switch to Lightroom a few years ago because he felt that aperture was too stagnant and he didn't trust Apple to keep updating it. And he's basically stated point blank that as far as he's concerned, Apple no longer exists to pro photographers. And I'm guessing you have a different point of view. I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've maybe I have a little bit more faith than uh, than some other people do and, and maybe it's just cuz I've been a bit closer to it than most, but I do believe that it will evolve to that point. We'll have all the features that we need, the features that we've been wanting. We've already seen things like lens correction and and enhanced noise reduction that are not built into the app but are actually built into the raw decode. We saw that through some WWDC sessions where those technologies are built in at the raw decode level. So that's great. So those are some features that we've been clamoring for for years that we now know are going to be there from in Photos 1.0 out of the gate. So that's all good. Um, will Apple build photos specifically for the the professional, the one who makes their living doing photography and needs that top, top 1% of features? Maybe, maybe not. I, th- I think it's safe to, we know that they're going to build a very robust photos app. We know that they're going to give us the features that we had in Aperture. Are they going to give us every last little Photoshop feature? No, I wouldn't expect that at all. Everything the Lightroom has? Yes, I think we will, but I think it's going to take some time to get there. Um, as, as far as believing in them for the pro photographer, I guess it really depends on what you expect out of your software. You know, I don't ever expect one piece of software to do absolutely everything. My arsenal, I've been an Aperture user since before 1.0. Um, and there's never have I thought, oh, this has to do everything. Oh, darn it, I have to use a plugin or I still have to go to Photoshop. It is still a very robust tool. And yeah, sure, I need other tools. But it, that goes for any piece of software on the Mac. I'm not going to throw away numbers because it doesn't do one type of calculation that I might occasionally need. I'll figure out how to do that somewhere else and bring it back in. Uh, that's just the nature of it. You've hit on something interesting there. So imagine you're, let, let's play a thought experiment. Imagine that you are correct and this is going to be on par with Aperture and then continuing on, for, you know, getting better. Mm-hmm. You then have something that's on par with Lightroom, but not on par price-wise with Lightroom. I mean, that would be quite a spectacular world to live in, wouldn't it? Where every Mac comes with effectively something as powerful as Lightroom for free. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a huge part right there, and and I think that that wouldn't be a big deal if Lightroom was a hundred or two hundred, even five hundred dollar product. But a lot of people do not like the subscription model. That is that is something that has put a lot of people off. And even on Aperture Expert, you get a lot of people commenting about how they they don't mind Lightroom. They it's fine. You know, it does certain things. It does better than Aperture. Certain things it does worse. They would switch, except that they don't want to be locked into this ten dollar a month. And that's the minimum. You're you're kind of photos package minimum $10 a month indefinitely and without any strong competition over the next nine months who what's to stop uh, Adobe from raising their price on that right those are the kind of concerns that people are are voicing and it's a valid concern uh, I mean it sounds like Adobe quoted as a monthly price but they make you do a year's commitment 
Which is, and again, you know, that's not really monthly in my book. It's sort of like right. cheating. Just as a, a, a PSA here, you can actually buy uh, Lightroom outright. In fact, it was advertised at me uh, when I updated Flash yesterday. $149 US will get you an outright license to Lightroom 5. Which okay. is not that much more expensive than Aperture was, or is. Well, Aperture was down to 70 euro, wasn't it? Yeah, $79. Yeah, yeah. yeah $80. So it's, it's not you know massively more expensive. It's not double yet. Not quite double yet, but it's not really mild. No, but if the, if those kind of dollars are the difference between going one way or another, then you're not really a professional photographer in that sense. I mean, it's it's the entire my entire basis of my photo library isn't going to be decided by the difference between a hundred and two hundred dollars. True, that's, yeah. that's more of a concern for us those amateurs. Right. And right, I mean, but you're absolutely right. You'll have everybody has it for free. Everybody who has a Mac will have photos and have that ability to do pretty much everything that a professional can do if they care to take the time to learn how to do it. Which in some ways is going back to the roots of the Mac where it's you know, a computer for creative people. Absolutely. Well, one of the big things, and this has come up a lot as well on the site, if you look at the, the analysis of the photos interface, one of the demos that we saw in WWDC that was so cool was when they dragged the slider on the lightness slider. So basically call it, you know, it's called lightness, but think of it like exposure. Right, you make the image brighter or darker. And that's one slider that does that, and the image gets brighter or darker. Okay, great. But as a pro, I know that is not enough. Right? I need a lot more than that. But hey, look at this. If you toggle the little disclosure triangle, suddenly there's five sliders inside of there. And as you move that one master slider, those five underneath aren't all moving the same amount or even in the same direction. It's all some under-the-hood intelligent analysis that it, it, the system is trying to figure out how to make this image better. But if you don't like it, you just grab one of those other five sliders and make the tweaks. Or whoever said you had to adjust that lightness slider to begin with, ignore it and start with the five sliders. That's totally up to you. And I love that that gives the, the average amateur user, the person who's never going to own anything more advanced than an iPhone, that gives them the ability to do essentially the same adjustments that a pro photographer using, using a top-end mirrorless or DSLR camera can shoot with, or can adjust with but that a top-end user just has more refined control over it. And that, that I think, is a beautiful thing. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Really cool. yeah, that, that was kind of spectacular. It, yeah, it, I thought that... Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, I thought that was really... I mean, I, I come from exactly the opposite end of the spectrum in that I take quite a lot of photos, but when it comes to ed- editing them, um, I might do a bit of cropping and I might push the fix button uh, <laughs> and I won't do an awful lot else. So, uh, yeah, th- I thought that one where it was actually adjusting all the levels, levels in different ways for you, for us people who really don't know and haven't really got the um, inclination to get stuck into working out how it all works. Um, I thought that was really cool. It's really nice, too, if you want to learn how it works, the, the ability to hit that fix-it button or to grab that one slider and then watch the other sliders change. And if you really, if you want to learn, if you're interested in it, then you can watch and say, oh, so that's why when... When the blacks get lighter like this, it's because the black point is moving the opposite direction to where I think, okay, now yeah. I get it. Right? Yeah, that's, that's really it. cool. Yeah, that is cool because um, let's face it, when if you don't know much about um, photo editing, um, you can make a real mess of whatever you're trying to do by just <laughs> sure. randomly sliding things about. Yeah, but since it's non-destructive, that mess is at least recoverable. Yes, but what then tends to happen, particularly for me, is that I just give up trying eventually because everything I try looks a mess. <laughs> so I just, I just click on fix and I might adjust the, uh, 
the uh, shadows and things a little bit, and that's about it. That's all I do. I'm actually kind of I'm actually you know I, I don't use iPhoto often, but it does nice calendars. So about once a year, I end up in iPhoto, and that fix button is actually quite clever. <laughs> it works, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. It doesn't. It doesn't work every time, but it yeah, it makes a good good guess. Okay, well, I'm going to move us on because time is uh, catching up with us here. So we're at, we're at an hour and ten. And I, I did promise we wouldn't go more than an hour and a half. Um, so Apple had their big developer conference. We found out about the Aperture change. Uh, but Apple weren't the only company to have a big developers conference. Um, Google also had their I.O. conference. And uh, they didn't have a two-hour keynote. They had a three-hour marathon keynote complete with <laughs> protesters. And I'll be honest, I decided my life was more valuable and I didn't watch it. <laughs> but what I did do is read about it. And um, I guess, you know, the big news is Android L. And I noticed we didn't get licorice or something like that. It's just L uh, is coming out. And they're doing, I guess, a sort of an iOS 7 in a way where they're, they're, re- they're having their go at redoing their UI and doing guidelines for developers in the hope that they get a consistent UI across their OS, which at least sounds interesting. And then there was also the whole, uh, oh, let's be on the telly and let's be in the car, or you know, Android Auto, Android TV. Oh, let's do health as well. But an awful lot of that stuff was previews of stuff still in development. And yeah. an awful lot of their demos apparently didn't go quite to plan. I think Google I.O. is a lot earlier in their cycle than WWDC is for Apple. It's like, it's like holding the WWDC for iOS 8 and Yosemite last December. Okay, so here's the cool stuff coming rather than here's the cool stuff. Yeah. And and from what I've heard, I mean, I haven't looked into any of this uh, for myself, but I've heard numerous podcasts uh, discuss it. And given how little is actually available to actually play with, um, Apple people do actually seem impressed with the material um, UI. Yeah. Well, it- if it works, if Google's idea that we're going to create these APIs, we're going to create this look, we're going to create these developer guidelines, if that works and the developers pick that up and third-party apps begin to feel as unified on Android as they do on iOS, that surely can only be a good thing for the platform. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I think the only apps that were available were the calculator and the dialer, i.e. grids of numbers. So it's it's not a lot to, not a lot to go on, but um, yeah, I've heard several podcasts discuss it and and say that you know they were worried that the animations were going to be overdone, but they actually didn't feel too bad in in real world use. Um, Gruber John Gruber also pointed something out, which was conspicuous by its absence: three hours of keynote, no mention of glass. Yeah, I think that's the. The perennial beta, isn't it? It's it's never going to develop. Does that mean that they've a sort of they've lost faith in it being the next great thing, or am I reading too much into it? Well, considering the number of things that they did talk about, it does seem you know odd that the, it didn't get a mention. But then you know, look at all the cool stuff that we've been talking about today. In fact, that's come out of Apple after WWDC. They did run into an awful lot of um, negative publicity, didn't they, when it first came out, Glass? Um, and continue to. I mean, how long has it yes. since um, The Daily Show had a good old laugh at them? I, I, just think, I just think that it still has an awful lot of potential. I think it's a shame if they've just thought, ah, no one wants this. Because I think, I still think there's a, a market for it. I, I think if they could have... I think if they could have targeted targeted it more specifically, 
there could be all sorts of things it could be used for apart from uh, spying on your neighbours. Yeah, I think the, the social angle is, is where the, most of the negative feedback is coming from. I think yeah. it could have some interesting commercial applications. Yes. I'm yeah, me like too. I'm stuck record, but uh, it comes back to the whole, if someone's going to do this, I don't want it to be Google because I'm not their customer. If Apple put something on my face that fit and worked well, I might be interested. I, I read an article many, many years ago, and I, I don't remember too much of the detail now, I think it was Boeing had developed a safety helmet that had a, I mean, you had a visor for safety and they were projecting maintenance information. I think it must have been a screen um, rather than, you know, head up display type thing. But when the engineer was was trying to replace the the nose wheel of a 747, they had the information projected on a screen in their helmet of remove this bolt, then remove this one, now grab this tool and do this. You know, it strikes me that glass is, is sort of the modern version of that, that you know, there's information available right in front of your face with your hands still free to do whatever you're actually doing. You know, that sounds like a very useful thing, but then in terms of social interaction with people, do you want a barrier between you and the person you're talking to? No, no, no. I don't want Facebook on my face. <laughs> hey, there's a slogan. <laughs> no Facebook on my face. Um, the other thing just to, to briefly mention is that there's a new API for Gmail, which has some people wondering, does that mean that you know Gmail's IMAP implementation, flaky as it is, may come to an end and that we may be forced to do the special Gmail apps only? I don't know if, that, if anyone particularly cares about that. I've largely given up on Google for most things, including Gmail. Um, the, I have seen commentary on this that people were worried about IMAP going away and then it was pointed out that there is a statement uh, in the documentation about the new API saying don't use this for standard full-featured email clients. So I guess it's not. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That, that, that answers that then. Anyone else have any, any thoughts on Google or shall we move along? No. We'll move along. <laughs> Um, the other, okay, so we've had Apple, we've had Google, so obviously it's time for some Microsoft talk. And um, this is not an official announcement. This strikes me as probably official leaking. Because um, I, don't, I don't like doing rumors on this show, but I get the impression this isn't a rumor. This is off-the-record Microsoft stuff, in my humble opinion. But anyway, we have some, some views into the future of what may or may not be called Windows 9. It is going by the uh, codename Threshold. And what strikes me here, and I'm delighted to say it, is that it sounds like the new Microsoft CEO may perhaps be introducing some sanity. Because basically what they're talking about is that when you're using a keyboard and mouse, Windows will behave in a keyboard and mouse-like way, showing you the start menu, which does actual start menu stuff instead of bringing up the tiles. And that when you don't have a keyboard and mouse and you do have a touchscreen, then it will fall over to a Metro-style UI in other words, when you have a mouse, you get a mousey OS, and when you have a finger, you get a fingery OS. And I'm delighted. Yay. How about that for blue sky thinking? Probably not. Anyone else want to chime in on that, or we possibly covered it? Let's hope, let's hope it does. Let's hope, let's hope we get something that's really usable and is, and is real competition, and that will put Apple on their uppers and make them be even better. Here, here. Well, now we jump to the uh, quick stories section of the show, and I really am going to be quick on them today because really 
well, actually, the, the first one, there might be some meat too. Amazon released two products during June. Um, they released their Prime Music service with a um, large-sounding, but perhaps not all that large, one million songs. And uh, they also released a phone, which um, I think Dan Fromer's probably hit the nail on the head with this one. He calls it a shopping machine that calls itself a phone. In other words, <laughs> the Amazon Fire Phone. Oh, as with most things Amazon, I don't live in the United States. End of story. Ditto. Does that mean it comes to me? <laughs> I think it might do. Well, Amazon's cool stuff. It takes a long time to cross that Atlantic Ocean to us. That it does, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm if sorry. It's the Pacific. Well, maybe not. Maybe you don't really need all this stuff. You could look at it No, we don't, Joseph. You're, you're absolutely right. We do not. That's true, actually, Joseph. I'm not particularly cut up that I can't have a fire tablet. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I think it's, it's a nice you know, shopping tool. Um, I th- obviously, until I actually hold that whole 3D interface thing in my hand, it seems like just a bit of a gimmick. Uh, and Apple did do a bit of that already the whole 3D thing, and it's not like uh, like I need to be able to tilt my phone side to side to be able to see way beyond the edges. I don't know. You know it, it takes, it'll take having to, to use it and see it to really understand. But um, as far as the shopping thing goes, yeah, I think it's fairly easy to do shopping already. It's Sure, it's cool to be able to push a button, point it at something, and say, I want to buy that. But it's certainly not enough to make me say, oh, I'm going to dump my iPhone and go for this thing. It's just, you know, it's neat, but... Mm. See, that is, that fire- is a good... It'd make a great app, right? If Firefly was available as an app, I'd be interested. But dedicating my entire phone to Amazon's convenience doesn't interest me very much. Uh, If they were giving the phone away to Amazon Prime customers, uh, knowing that they're going to buy even more than they already do, then that could be interesting. But to spend money on a phone and then spend the money on the plan, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. It's taking convenience too far, I think. Amazon have got how big without this? It's not like it's hard to to buy stuff from Amazon. I mean, you know, the stuff that I can buy, it's you know, one-click shopping. It's it's already easy. I don't see why we need to make it any easier. <laughs> well, I do actually, but I, I don't see why we need it to be any easier. Amazon obviously want to, uh, you know, like we said about the Apple purchases earlier, make it easier and easier to do. Mm-hmm. I imagine if you ran a brick-and-mortar bookshop, you would be the opposite of excited about Firefly. Sure. Because people get to wander into your shop. Actually, any brick-and-mortar shop, people wander into your shop, play with all of your display units, and then wave their phone over it and buy it from Amazon. Yeah, that's an ethics thing. that I, I can only speak for myself, but I know that if I walk into a store, um, sure, I will do some price comparison, but unless it's a massive, massive difference... Uh, you know, I'm going to buy it there because I walked into the store for a reason. I wanted to put my hands on it. I wanted to play with it. I wanted to felt, see what it felt like, maybe ask some questions. Uh, well, all right, maybe never ask questions because no one in the store seems to know anything they're talking about these days. But the ability to go in and touch it, that's worth the premium of paying the few extra bucks for it. Um, if it's a huge difference, again, then that might be different. But then even then, it might be worth talking to the store and saying, look, I, I want to buy it from you. I really do. But it's $100 cheaper on Amazon. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, yeah but also cheaper. Usually, these things work out a bit less dramatic. Being on the the back end of the world as I am, uh, d- d- not so much for some products, but certainly with others like cameras, for example, I'm paying a massive premium on a lot of the gear that I like to buy to buy it locally. But sometimes I'll pay that because it means that if it breaks, I can just wander back to the same shop and say it broke, fix it. 
Whereas if I buy it online, I'm probably going to buy it from a different city at least, if not a different country. And then getting service on the item is, you know, unless it's Apple, for example, is hard with hard yards. It's it's not worth doing in some cases. So often whether I buy in brick and mortar is if it's expensive and it's possible it will break, I'll buy it brick and mortar. Um, I, moving on to the next quick story, I don't think there has been a single month since I started recording this show ten months ago where Apple have not hired someone with expertise in wearables. June has been no different. Apple have hired um, a chap whose first name is Alex and whose surname I can't pronounce from Atlas Wearables. I guess it just proves that there is something wearable coming from Apple, but goodness knows what, and I'll be darned if I'm going to have a guess. <laughs> It'll be the IT shirt. IT shirt. It it doesn't actually do anything. It just got a big eye on it. <laughs> it's a t shirt, <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. No, it's not a t shirt, it's a black polo neck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, now this is, the next story is the one I thought Alistair was referring to earlier when he said we might all want to rush out and buy a new Mac, and then I got all confused. <laughs> no. <laughs> but Apple have added a new iMac to the family. It fits in at the entry level, I believe, is the euphemism for um, not-so-good end of the spectrum. Uh, or cheap end of the spectrum, let's be fair. Um, so you can now buy a 21.5-inch iMac for about $1,000, which is not a bad starting price for your very shiny-looking computer. And it has Bluetooth LE. Does it have Bluetooth LE? Okay, so you can do the cool I've, stuff. I've, yep. Um, also, the iPod Touch got some love. It now has a rear-facing camera and a price cut. Two good features, I think. And then, There was an iPod without a rear-facing camera? Yeah, the, the iPod Touches didn't use... They only had the FaceTime camera at the front. Really? So now they really hmm. are iPhones sans phone. Do you remember the iPod Touch, Joseph? <laughs> It used to be a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I do, but I. Are you sure that seems odd? I was could have sworn that the iPod Touch always had a camera on the back. I mean, I've got an old one in the house that I know does. Uh, the new candy colored ones. I I thought they all did have a rear facing camera. Did did the low end one cut it out at some point, and they've just put it back? Or was it just the low-end model? Okay, Qu- quoting from the Mac Observer, before today, the entry-level iPod Touch was available yeah. only in silver. Oh, no, now it comes in a full range of colors. That's not very interesting. Uh, Apple yeah, but that's the same as the, the camera. 16-gigabyte iPod Touch adding a 5-megapixel camera. So I guess that means mm. the other ones did and the, fi- and the, the entry-level yeah. one didn't? I think so. Okay. This, yeah, this, is how often, this is how much time I spend looking at the iPod Touches. <laughs> it's a great device like you said it, it is an iPhone minus the antenna and there was a time when I was absolutely in love with the device because again being on the wrong side of the Atlantic from an Apple point of view we couldn't get the iPhone for quite a few years here in Ireland we weren't mm-hmm. yeah, near the top of the list but I owned an iPod Touch the instant it became available and to me it was every bit as cool as the iPhone I just had to have a Nokia next to it <laughs> right, yeah, and the fact here. that you can, as long as you're on data, you can you can do voice calls, you can do FaceTime, you can do Skype. Uh, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, it really is a phone, except for the cell network, and a, and a few extra millimeters of thickness too. Right, and GPS is always the one that people get caught out on. Ah, uh, yeah. Cellular and GPS seem to go together. 
Well, that's because it's, it's a system GPS. The, the, the chip in those devices doesn't triangulate off three satellites. It like, triangulates off one and then guesses based on the cell towers, isn't it? Well, no, uh, I think it starts, starts by basing it off of your cell tower position, and then it refines it. You know when you first fire up um, uh, the maps, you see the, the pulsing larger circle that gets narrower and narrower, yeah. smaller and smaller until it refines in where you are. And my understanding of that has always been that it's basically doing a, a rough analysis based off of cell towers because that's what it grabs first. And then it second level is Wi-Fi hotspots. It's grabbing what known Wi-Fi hotspots and bringing it down even closer. And by the time you've gotten there, by then it's locked onto the satellites and then it can give you that full-on position, which takes, what, I don't know, 10 plus seconds before it grabs. But instead of staring at a blank screen, you're getting closer, closer, and then you're there. And, of course, with the iPod Touch, then you cut out the first... Well, you cut out the first and the last of those steps. You yeah. can't use cell towers and you can't use... Just Wi-Fi. Right, just that, that's an annoying feature of, of assisted GPS because, I mean, a great description, Joseph. It's, it's the start of the process that's uh, assisted because there's a, there's a message that comes up. I get it on my uh, iPhone every now and then I turn off the Wi-Fi, usually because I'm on the edge of some uh, Wi-Fi signal and it's not working too well. And then I go to a map and it says... Uh, location accuracy uh, location accuracy will improve with Wi-Fi turned on. No, it won't. <laughs> location <laughs> speed will improve, but it will not be more accurate with Wi-Fi turned on because it will get to GPS, and that's the most accurate by far. What's interesting, though, is for things like uh, your your location-aware alerts. Um, what do they call that stuff? Uh, oh, uh, geofencing. Uh, geofencing, there we go. For geofencing, that is Wi-Fi, right? That They don't do... The um, they don't do the GPS at all for that, and I've okay. found, like I'm I live quite close to where my studio is, and if I turn off Wi-Fi in my home, on if I'm at home and I turn off Wi-Fi on my phone, suddenly the phone thinks it's at the studio, or the studio thinks that I'm there, I should say, and it will disable the alarms and turn on the lights, and I get an alert that you know the alarms <laughs> off and your lights are on. I'm like, damn it, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> so, so, it, so it can still see the SSID, so it says, oh, I'm close to there. It's not even that close, but it's other hotspots that are around me. Or I, it's I don't know, it, but it's not GPS. That is definitely through the Wi-Fi part of it. So when it says improve accuracy, at least in that regard, it's right because it knows that I'm not actually at the studio if the Wi-Fi is on. But I mean, if, if you think about it, if the GPS was on all the time to keep doing those geofences, your battery life would be teeny tiny. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm not saying it's not done correctly. It's I'm sure it's you know it's a great solution. And it's a great compromise. Uh, but that is one of those things where you turn that off and suddenly um, your location, as far as geofencing is concerned, is not as accurate. Or maybe it's completely, just totally wrong. Um, the last story then is one really to put a pin in, and we'll see how it goes. The European Union have said that they want to investigate those nasty countries like Luxembourg and the Netherlands and uh, Ireland uh, for making deals with those evil big corporations like ooh, Apple, uh, in terms of tax. Now, I live in Ireland, and... You, our Prime Minister couldn't get to a microphone fast enough to defend us on this one. <laughs> Honest to goodness, it, it, minutes later he was, he, was on, he was in front of camera saying, no, 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 Ireland entirely obey the law on this. We are, we are being competitive. This is very important to us, but we are not doing anything wrong. And expect to see a very vigorous defense from both Ireland and Apple and the other companies involved on this one. But the European Union is investigating those tax breaks. Well, I oh, remember I mean, Tim Cook even saying once, pointing out that uh, when talking about U.S. taxes and the taxes that he that Apple pays here, and 
defending why we Apple has so many operations overseas and so much money overseas, saying, look, we're taking advantage of tax loopholes. Why wouldn't we? We'd be stupid not to. But we fully support closing these loopholes. We will pay more taxes into this country, but fix the tax code. Until it's fixed, we're going to take advantage of it because it's legal. And why wouldn't we? Well, not only is it legal, if you think about it, Apple has a fiduciary duty to its shareholders. Exactly. If it voluntarily just gave away shareholders' money to the taxman, they'd be in court before you could snap your fingers. So, now, there you go. That's right. a great point. If the American government want more of the tax, they need to fix the tax system. And, yeah, good luck yeah, with that. good for Ireland if that happens, but, you know, you certainly can't say, oh, how dare you, Ireland? You're making things uh, inviting to companies. Of course they're here. Yeah. <laughs> Shame on you. Exactly. And, and Mr. Irish Prime Minister, you may be obeying the law. It's the law that's an ass. That's the <laughs> point. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I am sitting here within 10 mile of Intel, HP, Microsoft, Oracle. Actually, no, about 20 miles from Oracle. But basically, there are more American companies than you can shake a stick at here. And that's, there's pharmaceuticals here as well as there are the tech companies. I mean, it has worked in Ireland. We are English speaking, we are in the euro, and we have cheap tax. Actually, there you go. Sorry, Sounds good to me. The Irish tourist board need to pay me. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I had we, this has I think we have set a record here for the longest show because I've always said oh no no hour long shows we don't go over an hour and a half and I'm looking at my clock and it's saying an hour and forty but it was a busy news week a month um, before we wrap up though I want to take a moment to thank all of the supporters of this show uh, we're now ten months into this show's existence and um, I think it's about time I, I gave an explicit thank you to everyone who supports the show in any way so any of you who have recommended the show to your friends. Thank you. Any of you who've written us reviews in iTunes? Thank you. To uh, Gerard, who did our logo? Thank you very much. It rocks. To Brendan Finan, who wrote our theme music? Thank you. I love it. To all of the panellists who have given up their free time to come here and talk tech or photography for the other shows? Thank you. Without you guys, this show wouldn't be a show. It'd be very one-sided. It would be a bit one-sided, Sorry. and I'm not entirely sure anyone would be all that interested in listening to me prattling on on my own. Even if it was less than an hour, I don't think it would work. Um, and then also to those of you who have clicked the PayPal button, thank you very much. You are helping pay the bills, and I really appreciate it. And then last, a big shout-out to our patrons over on Patreon. You guys are literally patrons of the arts, and I thank you very much. So, um, thank you. With that, let's say a special thank you to the panelists today. Um, we'll go in reverse order. Joseph, thank you for joining us. I hope I hope it was fun. Absolutely, pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was our pleasure. Trust me. Um, do you want to tell the good listeners where they can find more of your work, uh, both yeah, your absolutely. and your photography? Absolutely. So for the world of photography, that would be photojoseph.com and same thing on Twitter and the uh, Instagrams and all those good things, just at photojoseph. And for the world of Aperture soon-to-be photos, it is apertureexpert.com. And if you're interested in jumping into the debate of what that site should become, because it clearly needs to evolve, head over there now. But the top contender right now is to move towards a total photos uh, ecosystem website, which would be called the photosexpert.com and that is the very likely future of the site Excellent. I hope you have that registered oh I do <laughs> wait what no <laughs> yeah I registered uh, probably over a dozen URLs since the announcement was made looking for a variety of, of possibilities so yeah I got it <laughs> and the best of luck with the changes because it's, it's going to be both an, an exciting and an interesting time 
Thank you. That it is. It is going to be exciting and interesting. And if I if I can, just one more thing. The um, in the interim, because we know Photos is going to be there for a while, and we also know that many users are going to make the switch over to Lightroom, and and that's fine. No, I'm not. It's not my job to keep them as uh, Aperture or Photos users. Uh, what I am going to do is be working on a complete transition guide for uh, from Aperture to Lightroom, because I know this is not an easy thing. It's going to be a real pain in the rear. So I'm going to be working on a guide for that to make it as painless as possible and as accurate as possible. And that's something I'll be doing over the next couple months and we'll be selling on the site. Oh, wow. I think that's going to be very popular. And it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> well, I mean, the chances are there are people who are going to try uh, Lightroom and they may end up coming back to photos, but they're still going to want to know how they can get out. Yep. Yep. Cool. You got it. Uh, Nick, thank you very much for joining us. Do you want to give out any links? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Spligosh, S-P-L-I-G-O-S-H. Uh, and if you're really interested in seeing what I look like, and I wouldn't understand it if you did, but you know, if, you, if, if you're strangely perverted in that way and you want to see a picture of me, then you can see uh, my About Me page. Uh, it's Nick underscore Riley. And that's Riley spelled R-I-L-E-Y. It is. Because the Irish people have quite a few different variations on that spelling. Indeed, they do. Alistair, thank you very much uh, for joining us as well, all the way from New Zealand. Do you want to give out a few links? Uh, yep, can sum it up in two. Uh, Twitter is ZKARJ, or for those of you in that one country in the world, ZKARJ. And you can find everything else that I do online at zkarj.me. Excellent. I've been your host, Bart Bouchot, so you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy computing. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Soft kitty, warm kitty, little ball of fur. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up what, here, Mark. What, what's going on, Kevin? You're singing the song Soft Kitty. That That's only for when somebody's sick and not feeling well. Oh, but I thought it'd be a great intro into the show. I mean, after all, people listening to us, they've got to be a little bit sick, don't they? That's true. We can't deny that. Especially if they want to hug a geek every week. I know. A little bit confusing. A little bit painful. I feel sorry for them. <laughs> but you know what? If you haven't listened to Geekiest Show Ever, simply go across to iTunes and type in Geekiest Show Ever and you can listen to Kevin and me every single week. We're sick, we're twisted, but we have fun doing it. <laughs>